Um, Marvellous. Good morning. Um, my name is Sanjay. Uh, I'm part of the leadership here at OCC. Um, and uh, it's my privilege to speak to you this morning from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, continuing our series. Um, two weeks ago, I, fir- I shared the first of two messages, a pair of messages, uh, from 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, and we looked at the privilege or the rights that the Corinthians had. Um, but Paul was saying to them, it's not just about your rights. It's not just about what you can eat and what you can't eat. It's the fact that you get to lay down those rights for the sake of other people and for the sake of the gospel. Um, you have the privilege of giving up your rights in order that people might come to know Jesus. So that's what we looked at uh, two weeks ago. And today we're going to continue on and look a little more practically at the specific outworking in this passage um, of food. Now, uh, I just wanted to ask, firstly, what's the, what's the worst thing you've ever eaten? Fish curry. Okay. Sand. Sahara Desert. Okay, fair. Cow brains, rotten apple. There's some pretty grim things. What was yours, Hannah? Goat's testicles. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop there. I think let's not go any further with that. Um, <clears throat> wonderful. So does anyone know what these are here? These innocent-looking white Malteser-type things. They're not goat's testicles, praise the Lord. Um, so this is, this is me in Central Asia a few years back. Um, so we had the unforgettable experience of eating yogurt balls. Um, not testicles of any sort. Um, I, know, I know you might be thinking, how bad can yogurt balls be? Well, unfortunately, they, uh, they make the yogurt and they let it sit for a few days until it goes really sour. And then they pack it into a ball and let it sit for a few more days until it's really gross and like dry and a bit crunchy. Yogurt's not meant to be crunchy. Um, and then that is a snack in Kyrgyzstan, in Central Asia. Um, that's when it's really good to eat, apparently. Um, so we had the absolute privilege of eating those a few years back. And uh, if, you're, if you're interested to see the reaction, search Kurut, K-U-R-U-T, on YouTube, uh, and you'll see some people's reactions of eating that. It's, uh, it's quite something. Um, so Paul, in these chapters, is writing about food which has been sacrificed to idols. And at first glance, this passage might seem uh, a little hard for us to apply Um, You know, we in Oxford in 2020 don't typically find food sold in the shops that has been sacrificed to idols, Um, but it is relevant to us. And to help us chew on the message of these verses, see how they speak to us today, um, what I've done, I've I've asked uh, Dan, Dan, if you could come up, to start by just sharing a testimony um, of how he's thought through his relationship with food. Uh, He's done that in a way that honours God, um, builds community, and has really inspired me. So that's where I wanted to start. Dan. Thank you, Sanjay. Uh, I've been asked to share my story, and to do that, we have to go all the way back to my childhood, which is not as far as for some people here. So I was a missionary kid. Uh, I, I grew up in Zimbabwe and Mozambique, which was very different to life here. And growing up, particularly, there weren't any supermarkets. 
so the weekly big shop consisted of traipsing around a dozen or so different little stores in the city. You get fish at one place and oil at another place. We had to go down the road to a family that locally baked bread. Um, you could get fruit and veg of varying quality at the nearby marketplaces. And there was always people by the side of the road selling like roasted maize and little packets of peanuts. And so consequently, I became much more aware of food than most people my age who've grown up in the UK. Because here we take a lot for granted, and we just assume that every kind of food is always available, it's always excellent, it's always about the same price and quality. Whereas having lived in Africa, I grew up with an awareness that if the rains don't come, people will struggle. That you can only get mangoes at the right time of year. There's good quality maize, and there's maize that's full of dust and weevils. And I think that growing up in this environment afforded me a fuller understanding of what food actually is. And there's a few fundamental principles that I've picked up from my upbringing that have stayed with me. First, because there wasn't very much variety and because my parents were quite strict, I learned to just eat what was put in front of me. When you've got choice, you get to be picky and then you can lose the thankfulness for what you're eating. But everything, all food, has been given to us by God for us to eat, so be thankful for it. Secondly, because I could see the poverty of the people around me, I gained an appreciation not only for how fortunate I was to never have to go hungry, but also for the importance of not wasting food. To waste food not only, again, shows ingratitude to God, but it also deprives someone else of food that they could have eaten. I grew up around people who got their meal by picking through the rubbish heaps to find the discarded food, and that food could have been given to them fresh rather than thrown out. I see wasting food, therefore, as a deep injustice. And finally, I learned that people love to be generous with their food and the powerful impact that that can have. We would go traveling around and visiting people in deep communities in the bush um, who eked out a living through subsistence farming. They had nothing. But when we came to visit them, they would kill goats or chickens and serve them up to us, giving us their best. We knew that they couldn't afford it. But because we were their guests and they wanted to honor us, they gave us their best. I learned lessons about generosity, about treating guests well, about how food brings a community together, and about the importance of not shaming your hosts by refusing what was offered to you. And speaking of chickens and goats, one final lesson that I learned in Africa was the cost and value of meat. Due to a variety of factors, meat was relatively scarce there. It was culturally a luxury, and it came with the cost of life. I helped to butcher quite a few animals that later were served up on my plate. Here in the UK, by contrast, meat is plentiful, affordable, distance from the animals that it comes from, and a major feature in most of our meals, so we eat a lot of it without thinking. We came back to the UK then, in 2010, and pretty quickly adapted to this very different culture. And then in 2015, I came here to Oxford University, and once again, I found myself in yet another different environment, this time surrounded by passionate vegetarians and vegans. In particular, one of my college CU reps, who I later became very good friends with, was a very outspoken vegan, and she began to educate me on all the evils of the meat industry. And you know, a lot of it was news to me. I learned that 14% of global greenhouse gases comes from the meat industry. I learned that demand for cattle grazing um, is destroying swathes of rainforests. I learned that in a world where people are starving, we use seven kilos of grain to produce one kilo of meat. And as I learned, 
I felt a, a growing conviction that there's an injustice here that matters and that I needed to make a personal decision about all of this. And so in November of 2015, when the annual veggie pledge rolled over, it's a uh, campaign to get people to go veggie for one month, I decided I'd give it a go and see what it's like. And I've been a vegetarian ever since. And that's not quite the end of my story, because in the four and a bit years since then, I've put a lot of thought into what matters to me when it comes to my food, and I've developed some less absolutist principles than just don't eat meat. The student lunches here from OCC taught me more about community and sharing meals together, that meals build relationship, and building relationship is really important. So I don't make too much of a fuss when I go home to visit my parents, because I know that they don't share the same convictions that I do. And in my mind, honor your father and mother is more important than not eating meat. But I've also shown respect to them by sharing what I've learned with them. And to the extent that they decided to stop buying beef, which globally has the worst impact on the world and its people. This is all an ongoing process for me. I'm currently trying to develop a theology of feasting. I believe that God gave us food to enjoy, not just to sustain us, which is why no matter how hard Johnny plugs it, I won't stoop to eating Huel. <laughs> there seems to be a biblical principle to me that when God blesses us with an abundance, it's good to celebrate that by stuffing our bellies. I rather suspect that because many of us live in constant abundance, we don't understand this principle. And so, for example, in recent years, I've indulged in that tasty, tasty meat that's served up at Christmas time, both to make cooking simpler for mum, but also because a corn fillet is simply a poor substitute for a slice of gammon. And what kind of celebration of Jesus' life would it be if I'm not even enjoying what I'm eating? For practicality, I've attempted to summarize all of this into a few levels of priority. Of first importance, I give thanks to God for what he has given and always seek to serve and honor him with the way I use my food. Secondly, I think you have to eat a diet that sustains you, not only physically, but also mentally and spiritually. Then the next two are sort of equally weighed, and how I apply them depends on the situation. Food should not be wasted. That's not changed from when I was a child. I believe that to waste food disrespects God and harms our fellow man. And food should be used to build community, eat together, give to those in need. Show love with it. Grow relationship with it. And then finally, subject to all those other priorities, I don't eat meat. I make a particular effort especially to not purchase meat for myself. So that's been my journey with food. Given where I am now, I actually don't like to be called a vegetarian. It's not accurate. I've tried a few different terms, ethical consumer or opportunistic eater. <laughs> I'm still looking for a label that fits. And perhaps something along the lines of one who's thankful for God's provision and considerate of God's people. Because I think that ultimately, that's what matters. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Uh, and bless you as you go and join in with Alpha if you do so. Um, I trust that was encouraging to us. Uh, food is a complex area. And I was struck that Dan has sought God, considered others, uh, and been open to making changes and sacrifices in his own life. And he's come to a place of, uh, not a finished place,
but he's come to a relationship with food in peaceful submission and obedience to God, uh, and also reconciled with um, some of the other commands about community and waste and justice. So Lord, I pray that we might be inspired by Dan's testimony um, to pursue the truth of your word and be open to changing in the light of it, um, and find the peace that comes from you as we, as we obey your word. Amen. So with that, uh, with that encouragement uh, in fresh in our minds, let's turn to the text. So I'm going to be drawing from 1 Corinthians 8 a little bit and focusing in more on 1 Corinthians 10. Um, so a few little verses from 8 which just help to frame this part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So Paul writes, Now about food sacrificed to idols, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Do you see the echoes of Dan's testimony in here? So then jumping to 1 Corinthians uh, and chapter 10. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar... Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God." Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow Christ's. So Paul here is talking about food sacrifice to idols. This was a live issue for the Corinthian church. There were lots of other religions and temples and people worshipping these other gods. And by and large, the meat that was available to buy and eat was that which was left over from these sacrifices to these other gods. Now, the issue was this. Some Christians, more mature Christians, were eating this meat and saying, all things are lawful for me. And that was causing offence to younger Christians who knew where the meat came from and were confused by the example of these older Christians, and wondering, well, if they're eating it, does that mean it's okay to participate in idol worship? 
Isn't there only one God? Why are they sacrificing or worshipping these other gods through eating their food? So we're just going to look very simply at three ways in which, these, in which this text calls us to interact with food. So the first is to be thankful. Um, Paul writes, do all for the glory of God. The second is to consider others, to give no offence, especially to the church, Paul writes. And then thirdly, to reach out. Um, right at the end of his, his letter in, in this chapter, in chapter 10, he says that all may be saved. That's why he's doing it. Um, so we're going to start by looking at this one, be thankful, let's glorify God. Throughout Israel's history, there's been a relationship between God's people and food. So significant moments in Israel's history were marked either wholly or partly by engaging with food. So the first Passover, uh, lambs were sacrificed by each family or household, um, and then each Passover that followed, there was a lamb that was killed um, by each family, um, and unleavened bread, which was baked, to remember the, the speed with which the Israelites needed to flee from Egypt. Um, moments of national victory were celebrated with feasting, and seasons of lament or extended corporate prayer were accompanied by fasting. The worship of God in the temple centered around an altar in which unblemished and pure animals were sacrificed to God, and eating of those animals was part of that ceremony. Uh, we think of David writing in Psalm 23. He sees a table laid in front of him in the presence of his enemies. Um, you can just take, take, a, take a moment to think through the Old Testament with the, the relationship between God's relationship with his people and food. We could think of Elijah being met and fed by ravens, God providing food. We could think of the Israelites in the desert and God providing manna for them to eat, providing and sustaining them. Uh, we could think of Abraham sitting when three men pass by and inviting them in to eat with him, uh, and he finds out these, he's entertained angels. Um, we could think in the New Testament of many moments, Pete, uh, Jesus restores Peter over a grilled fish breakfast on the beach. Um, and most, most significantly, the Lord's Supper is a meal. It's a, it's a significant meal uh, with a significant meaning. And Jenny and Andy are going to speak more about the relationship um, between food and, and communion next week. <clears throat> On the other hand, when people rebelled against God, food was often involved as well. When Aaron and the Israelites make a golden calf in Exodus 32, it says they built an altar and the next morning rose early, sacrificed to this other god, and then sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So Paul understands that there's this connection between food and worship, and he calls on the Corinthian church to flee from idolatry uh, in this passage where he's actually talking about a practical question of food. Have you ever wondered that God could have made us not to need food? He was well able to do so. Have you ever wondered what food's actually for? So food sustains us and nourishes us, but have you ever wondered why God's made it that way? There's a book called Food and Faith, which I found immensely helpful on this subject. Um, and in it, the author writes, whenever people come to the table, they demonstrate with unmistakable evidence of their stomachs that they are not self-subsisting gods. We're not independent. They are finite and mortal creatures 
dependent on God's many good gifts, sunlight, photosynthesis, decomposition, soil fertility, water, bees and butterflies, chickens, sheep, cows, gardeners, farmers, cooks, strangers, friends, and the list goes on. He argues that to see food as only a mechanism by which we sustain life is, uh, is a poverty in our view of food. Um, he, he, he draws a parallel with, if we were to look at the words, I love you, on a page, and we didn't know that that's what it said, we might see those marks on the page just as ink. And actually, there's an education that is behind understanding the message of those words. In the same way he talks about food, if we, if we just understand it as a, as a mechanism by which we're sustained, we miss out on the, on the richness of the meaning of food. It's like looking at those marks and not reading the message, I love you. So those marks mean something. In the same way, an education is required to move beyond seeing food just as a means of sustenance and see what it really means. So food, then, I I suggest, is a means by which we can glorify God. And there's a really tangible way to interact with this, which is to be thankful. Um, Another another wonderful quote uh, in in that same book um, is that the mystery of food is as a precious gift and sign of God's sustaining care. Um, So food, if if food is this means by which we can glorify God, there's a really simple response, which is to be thankful. Um, I just wanted to say a quick note about superstition. Um, What I'm not saying is that food is something we should revere as if it is God. I'm saying food is given by God. As we take food into our bodies every day, we can recall that this is a gift, not glorious in itself, but glorious because of the giver. Um, So remember the Kyrgyzstan yogurt balls? There was another interesting food quirk we saw in uh, Kyrgyzstan, which is this bread. Um, So in Kyrgyzstan, they have a reverence for bread, which means that they're not allowed to throw it away, uh, which sounds well and good, no waste. It also means that if it goes green and mouldy, you've got to eat it. And our hosts there told us that there were moments where they'd eaten this green mouldy bread with a perfectly fresh loaf sitting next to it because they had to eat the green one. Um, What I'm not calling for is superstition. Um, What's happened in Kyrgyzstan is the the principle of bread as good and a gift from God has been disconnected from the truth that it's given in relationship. If your bread is mouldy, you don't need to eat it in superstition. You can do several things. You can buy less next time, or you can invite a friend over before it goes mouldy so that you don't have mouldy bread to waste. I know that many of us eat together in our communities, and that's awesome. So let's continue to do that. As we do so, let's, let's become more aware, more thankful to God for this gift of food. Perhaps your community or your family needs to go on a journey of talking more about food, what it is, who, who's given it. Uh, food is a gift from God. Let's be thankful to him. And we've got an opportunity to engage really practically with this next week. You'll have seen on your chairs, there's a reminder about the church birthday. We're going to be eating together, we're going to be celebrating together, and we're going to be looking more at food uh, and our relationship with God. So as you prepare for the church birthday next week, perhaps as you bake some bread for the competition, let's consider food this week as a precious gift and sign of God's sustaining care. So secondly, Paul writes in verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. 
So we might think, okay, I'm not going to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's fine. Um, That's not particularly relevant for us uh, as a community in Oxford in 2020. Um, But before landing this in in our context, I do want to say that this is a real deal around the world. Christians are involved in communities and contexts where others among them, their neighbours, sacrifice food to idols. And the instructions that Paul gives here are not just helpful principles, but really tangible day-to-day instruction. Jenny and I visited India in 2017, and we had the privilege of attending a Hindu wedding. It was a remarkable event, uh, five days, six different events, and and it was a Hindu thing, and there was going to be a worship ceremony while we were there. Thankfully, we were with some other Christians, Indian Christians, and we had the opportunity to ask them. We said, we we want to honour this couple who have invited us to their wedding, but we also don't want to be doing anything that's wrong because of our faith. Uh, you know, we don't want to celebrate or worship Hindu gods. How do, we, how do we do that? And they just gave us a really helpful principle. They said, um, you can take part in everything, but don't take the mark on the forehead called the tikka or the tilaka, uh, because that is a sign of religious devotion. We've just observed Ash Wednesday, or some of us might have, um, in which the ash sign of the cross is marked on the forehead, and the words are spoken, repent and believe in the gospel, uh, or otherwise the words, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's a similar sort of thing. This taking of the mark on the forehead is a sign of devotion to God. Um, and to do so for us in India would have been a sign of devotion to false gods. So we went to the wedding, we had a great time, and we found out lots about their traditions and their rituals. And at one point, we were encouraged to take this mark on our forehead. And because of that conversation, because of some of the principles in this text, we were able to confidently decline and say, no, actually, for us, we worship another God, so we're not going to take that sign of devotion on our head. Now, note that to me and Jenny, a bit of thing on our foreheads doesn't make a difference to who I worship, but the sign that we would have given to the community would have been that we were devoting ourselves to other gods, so we held back regardless of what it would have done to us for the sake of their consciences. So for the sake of other consciences, we can refrain from certain actions or customs. It may not be a Hindu wedding for you, but we all have moments where, as Christians, uh, our path lies sometimes in a different direction to the world's paths. Um, I remember a friend in Southampton at uni, uh, he, he, drinks, he drinks alcohol, but during his hockey initiation, he decided not to because he, he figured that that would give the wrong impression at the start of his relationship with these guys on his hockey team. Can you think of a situation where you might choose not to do something, not because it's an inherently unhelpful, uh, but because to do so would be to demonstrate the wrong allegiance or the wrong devotion to the wrong God or to the wrong spirit? Paul writes, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. I just want to encourage you that 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 thing that you might have to choose might involve personal sacrifice. Dan's already mentioned this. You know, the, the, the path that God calls us to walk on may not be the easiest one. In fact, Jesus tells us that it's most likely not going to be the easiest one. But there's good in it, and there's freedom there. So uh, the final point in um, 
In the final verses of this chapter, Paul ends with his reason for not acting in this way. He says that they may be saved. Having addressed food for three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, we realise here that Paul actually isn't that concerned about what they eat or what they don't eat. He says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, couldn't care less. Do all for the glory of God. So Jesus encouraged his disciples in Luke 10 when they went out to eat whatever is set before them. Um, In Acts 10, Peter has has a vision of unclean animals, and the Lord encourages him to take and eat, which would have been unthinkable for him as a Jew. Uh, God tells him he shouldn't call unclean what God has made clean. So time and again, we see the encouragement to lay down our rights regarding food, our privileges, our preferences, for the sake of sharing the gospel. Dan has already shared how this works for him. He's willing to eat what he has personally resolved not to eat for the sake of building community and reaching out. I know lots of people who have reached the same conclusion. Uh, My father-in-law was reading through that instruction to eat whatever is set before you, and despite being a vegan, he resolved that when he went to other people's homes, particularly if they were non-Christians, he wouldn't let that get in the way of them building relationship. He wouldn't impose that. Eat whatever is set before you. So this final instruction from Paul gives the whole reason for his life, his work, and his eating habits. He says, food will not commend you to God, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do. I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, that they may be saved. Some of you may be familiar with this triangle, which we found to be helpful in thinking about the focus of our attention as Christians. We focus on our relationship with God, on our relationships with other Christians, and our relationships with those that don't know Jesus. Um, I want to offer you a, an, up, an updated triangle, particularly focused on food. So food is a way that we can glorify God. Food is a way that we can express our commitment and our belonging in community with Christians. And food is a way to reach out. And I know many of you do this. Um, I remember Mark Ely from Bicester, our church in Bicester, sharing about just how he's been inviting neighbours to eat with them. And he's seen really deep relationship form and been able to share faith in that context. When's the last time you had a meal with someone who doesn't share the same faith as you? So I just want to offer a couple of responses as we, as we come into land. Um, so for all of us, there's a thankfulness that, that, quote, a precious gift and sign of God's sustaining care. If your habit is to say grace before a meal, um, perhaps you could refresh that. Has that become a little bit, we say the same words every time? Uh, my family growing up, it was, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for this food, thank you for this day, amen. <laughs> and we said it every day, but we didn't necessarily think about the meaning of those words. Invite your kids into this, invite your communities into this. Let's look to refresh that sense of gratefulness, thankfulness to God for his provision of food. Um, A second thing is that actually you may have been challenged by Dan's testimony to reconsider your approach to food, whether you eat meat or whether you don't eat meat, Um, whether to explore the ethics and the justice around food. I was absolutely stunned as I prepared for this sermon to learn that um, about 10% of people in the UK 
have not eaten for a whole day in the last year because of challenges either being able to afford or access food. This is a justice issue uh, and one that God would have us engage with as his children in the world. So some of you might be stirred to reconsider your approach to food. You might have resolved to be a vegetarian or a vegan, or you might have resolved not to be. Um, I'd suggest that God might be stirring you to submit those choices once again to God, because God, God wants us to be devoted to him. And in that context, our food choices can be, uh, can be a good and right choice. But I, I just felt that for some of us, vegetarianism, veganism, or our freedom to, meet, to eat meat might have become the God, might have become the idol. Paul says, flee from idolatry. Perhaps there needs to be a little refresh of why you eat what you do. Um, let's consider that. And then finally, the third response, um, we've been talking about freedom. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Uh, our sense in preparing for this morning was that actually there's freedom here in this area of food. It's a complex thing. Um, I, I don't need to tell us that. Uh, whether, whether eating too much or too little, uh, whether being able to eat or not feeling able to eat, there is complexity in our relationship with food. And I want to suggest that there's, there's freedom for us. There's an invitation from God to those who want God's help in restoring a right relationship with food in submission to him. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand back over to Simon, but if any of those, and particularly that invitation to seek freedom, it might be for greed, uh, it might be you find it too easy to eat too much, or it might be that actually there's other complexity in your relationship with food. Let's seek God's help in restoring right relationship with food this morning.